Are the batteries in? Am I dialed in? I got to set the right thing. It's always a, it's a, it's a consuming thing for us, uh, how, how we're hearing. But that's not uh, the question I'm actually asking today. How's your hearing? I'm not talking about your audible hearing. I'm talking about your cognitive hearing. How is your hearing for understanding today? Have you guys ever been in a conversation with somebody that after you walk away from the conversation, you actually realize what was being said in the moment? And you have that aha moment. Oh, man, I missed that completely. Went straight over my head. Or you're in a uh, new relationship with somebody, you have a new friend, and you hear what your friend is saying to you, but really it's only getting to know them better, and sometimes years in the making better, that you actually begin to have a context for understanding. When this person says this, this is actually what they mean. Hearing is difficult. Communication is difficult. Maybe it's happened to you in a negative context. You have a spouse or you have a friend that's expressed something to you, a concern, expresses to you over and over after year after year. And at this point, you've just stopped listening to what they've said. You're actually numb to it. Um, you may give lip service, but you've just lost all sensitivity for what they're trying to communicate. And it may be that you don't even know what is being said at this point. And at that, at that, uh, at that point, we've got to have something to jolt us awake again, something to make us receptive again, uh, something to actually help us hear again for the first time what is actually being said. Sometimes for my uh, time in the Word in the morning, what I'll do is I'll listen to an audio Bible and then I'll just open my Bible and read along in the text. You guys ever do do that? Sometimes if I'm really tired on a particular morning, I may just turn on the audio Bible, I may just lay back down and even close my eyes and then just try to listen. And in that, I'm going to hear a variety of narrators read, and you know they have different accents, and they're going to emphasize words, they're going to uh, accent words differently than I would. And so it's different for me. And when I'm listening to that, all of a sudden they'll say something, uh, they'll read it in a, in a way differently. It's a, it's a passage or it's a word I've read hundreds and hundreds of times, but by God's Spirit, it actually just comes alive to me in that moment. And I'm like, wait a minute, what, what did you say? What is the text saying there? And I'm, now I'm awake. I'm awake. I'm in my Bible. I'm probably looking at the, the study notes at the bottom, and I'm probably grabbing some commentaries to see, have I been mistaken all this time? Have I missed this all this time? But it's true. God has said it seriously. And now I understand it. And it moves me to a response in that. It moves me to repentance, and it moves me to obedience. And it moves me to worship in the Lord, and it moves me to joy in the Lord. I hope that a revelation experience is common to you as well. You know, to know that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives and, and revealing God's truth to us, revealing God's truth to our hearts. I hope, uh, and this is the idea behind this sermon series, which is God said what? Seriously? It's to jolt ourselves awake again concerning some core commands of God's truth. So each of us will probably be coming from this uh, at a different angle. Um, it's, it may be that some of us have actually never heard physically or visibly read or heard God's word, so these truths will be new to you. Uh, for others, we've read these truths, but maybe we haven't readily understood them. And, and others, perhaps that we know these truths, we understand them, but we've become so desensitized to them that we're actually comfortable in our disobedience to what God's clear truth and God's clear command is saying to us. 
So to that end, each of the elders in this series will take one of God's commands and they're going to re-examine it. Um, as I said, these are likely ones that you know well, but we're hopefully going to see them in a fresh way. And then by God's spirit, hopefully he's going to open our ears to hearing, hearing them for the first time. Today, what we're going to look at is the command that God gives us in Psalm 37. And God says, delight yourself in the Lord. Why are we commanded to delight? What, what does that even mean? What does that look like? How do we delight? Conversely, what ways maybe are we not delighting in the Lord? And then how can we move towards obedience to that command? Uh, our home group that we're a part of, Beth and I lead, uh, we just uh, finished going through John Piper's book called Desiring God. Are you guys familiar with that book? How many, how many have read that book? So just a handful. It's considered a classic. I'd recommend it to you if you haven't read it. Um, some of the inspiration for this teaching today and some of the actual material is taken from uh, John Piper's book. So if you're familiar with that work, you're going to hear some of that uh, today. So with that, before we get started and actually get to the command, I want to pray for us uh, that God's Spirit would open our eyes. So if you'd bow with me. Lord, you are good and you are gracious to us. Lord, you are abounding in steadfast love towards us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are comforting us and you are revealing truth to us. And I would ask that you would do that today, where you would open the eyes of our hearts to take in what your commands are. Help us to see the beauty and the glory of what they are. And Lord, help us to be obedient to these commands. All for your glory, all for your honor, God. Amen. So just a, a general thing to know about hearing this command or any, any of the commands that uh, God has, it assumes that we know a basic orientation before the Lord, and that's related to primarily three things, and that's his glory, his holiness, and uh, lives that are oriented towards the long view, towards eternity. And so everything follows from that. Uh, this list, of course, is not complete, but I think it's very helpful. It's very basic but I think it's absolutely vital and it's worth uh, repeating and reminding ourselves of that. And so the first thing is that God upholds his glory above all things. All that God is, all his attributes, all that he has done, all that he is doing, all that he will do is all for his glory. All of creation, the presence of good and evil, whether we live or whether we die is for God's glory. God upholds his glory. He lives for his glory. It takes precedent above all things. We do not. Our thoughts, our convenience, what we think maybe is important does not take precedence. God living for his glory is ultimately great for us, but we do not take precedent. His glory does. The second thing is that God is holy. We are created in God's image. He is not created in ours. He cannot be reduced to our finite human understanding. God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He has given his word for us to have knowledge of all he desires that we know, but we are finite and we don't know as God knows. And we trust in his holiness. And the third, and I have to remind myself of this all the time, God's instruction assumes that our lives are oriented to the long view towards eternity. As we are sojourners and exiles in this world, we are to look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So from eternity past, all things are moving towards the consummation of the kingdom of God. And that frames everything that we think about and everything that we think should happen and everything that God is doing in his intent. So outside of this orientation, outside of these, these God-oriented lenses that we're putting on, we cannot accurately hear what God is saying. So we keep in mind his glory, his holiness, and the long view. Okay, so for, with this in mind, we're going to see what God commands us in Psalm 37. And we're, this psalm is much longer. We're only basically going to look at the first uh, four verses, which are on the screen there. So I'll just read that. It says, uh, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Amen. Amen. By way of context, this is considered a wisdom psalm. This is written by David near the end of his life. In fact, it's so, it describes it being so steeped in the wisdom tradition that it could be included in the book of Proverbs. It doesn't contain any prayer or praise. It's all instruction. It's all a sermon to us. Notably, the psalmist is commanding the reader to delight in the Lord in the context of being faced with the wicked who are flourishing, the righteous who are suffering. We don't know whether the psalmist has a, a particular event in mind or whether this is just a general summary of conditions, but the righteous and the wicked are both living in the land together. God's people are under persecution. The hope and the promise of dwelling in land in peace has not been yet realized. And so then the rest of the psalm goes on to say that evildoers and wrongdoers are rising. They carry out evil devices. They plot against the righteous. They gnash their teeth at them. They draw the sword and they bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy. They slay those whose way is upright. They borrow but do not pay back. And they watch for the righteous and they seek to put him to death. So there's heat and there's noise here. These are not carefree times. Can you relate to any of that? What would our response be in the midst of that? Would it be, see if you identify with this, would it be worry or envy, envy at the ease and prosperity of those who are in power, anxiety, impatience, yes, anger and wrath, yeah, discontentment, probably, violence, I hope not, Perhaps even joining sides with evil. Now, I've probably had all these responses to much less evil than what the psalmist describes. And yet, God is saying, delight in me. How do we do that? Do we try to force change? We don't. God has a better way, and it's not going to be by immediate action. It's not going to be by force. It's not going to be by empowering his people, as we would probably like to see happen. Instead, he's going to teach his people, and he's going to teach us today, to wait and trust and take the long view. Again, through those God-oriented lenses that we're putting on, we're waiting, knowing that he is working all things for his glory, and we're trusting in his holiness. And so, into this mess, the Lord says to his people, he's saying to us, he says, fret not. 
He's saying, don't worry. Don't get heated. Don't get overworked at wrongdoers. They are like grass, and they're soon to fade. Look to the future. Justice will be done. This weight of fretting is not for us to carry. We can't handle it. In fact, it tends only to evil. And I don't know about you, my general default has always been to worry and fret about everything. In fact, I don't think I'm being responsible unless I was worrying about something. <laughs> I remember when the Lord started to work on me in this area, I was uh, considering, thinking about something concerning that was going on. And I all of a sudden realized, I'm not in the, the dread of worry like I always am. And then I began to panic. Wait a minute. I'm just sitting here. Lord, is this okay? I'm actually at peace here. Are we all right here? Yes, you're fine there. The Lord would have us settled and quiet in the spirit. This is his mercy to us. It's not that we don't show proper concern and that we don't take uh, proper action, God-honoring action, but rather we don't give into the despair of what worry is. And conversely, we don't assertively assert ourselves where we shouldn't. And guys, there's no joy in fretting. You know this. It adds no pleasure to life. So let's just take God at his word here and let it go. This is his mercy to us. Fret not. So if our first step is actually kind of an anti-action, we're stepping back. What is our action step? And uh, the Lord says next to trust, actively trust. Trust in him, do good, and befriend faithfulness. He's saying, let God sort out the injustice and trouble. That's for him to do. That's not us. We are to do good. We are turning outward instead of dwelling with internal worry. We're overcoming evil with good. We're doing good to those who hate us. Befriend faithfulness, or he's saying feed on faithfulness, or he's saying enjoy the security of faithfulness. We are drawing our strength from the faithfulness of God to us. We're at peace here. But then it's in the context of the troubles and the injustice surrounding us, God gives the command. This is it. Delight yourself in the Lord. And I don't know if that seems unusual here to you. It does a little bit to me, given the circumstances of trouble. You know, we understand that we should let fretting go. That's a concept we can take. We know to trust God, to do good, to be faithful. We can be obedient to that. We understand that. But delight yourself in the Lord. With the circumstances, it's not really probably what I've had in mind. But notice what's happening here. This is a critical shift that God is not just commanding our actions. He is now commanding our emotions. And this is a deliberate redirect of our emotions. Can God do that? You know, we tend to be action-oriented. We understand God's authority over what we do. But do we know God as Lord over our emotions? Now think about that. He is it makes sense for God to be Lord of our emotions if we have a right view of God, if we have a right view of who we are. You know, humans were created as worshiping beings. We are actually pleasure-seeking beings. We long for fulfillment, but we sin constantly by seeking that fulfillment in things less than the perfection of God. God is all-knowing, he's everywhere, he's sovereign, he is of infinite greatness and worth. He is worthy of all our hearts, souls, minds, and strength. And so he commands that we bring all that to bear 
and to delight in him. So what does that, what does that mean, to delight in God? Well, we delight in God when we are taking pleasure in him. We take joy in him. We enjoy him. We find our happiness in him, our peace, our hope. We find our contentment in God. We take pleasure in all that he is, all that he does, and we delight in what he takes pleasure in. We were made for this. This is how God created us as pleasure-seeking people who have a longing for fulfillment in him. The theologian Blaise Pascal, he argued this, this point that we are pleasure-seeking people when he said, all men seek happiness, this is without exception, whatever different means they employ to do that, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding war, it's the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will, the human will, never takes the least step but to this object, towards happiness. And this is the motive of every action, of every man, even of those who hang themselves. When you reflect on that, you know that this, this is true. We do what we do because we want what we want. We are motivated by our happiness, by what satisfies us. Therein lies our question. What does satisfy us? And this longing and this fulfillment is reflected in the Psalms, as you know. And uh, the Psalms say, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. My soul thirsts for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And then the answer, you give them drink from the river of your delights. God is creating this desire, this longing for happiness, for satisfaction, and then he calls us to himself as the fulfillment of that desire. And John Piper helps us here through two key thoughts underlying his book, Desiring God. And these are great. The first thought is, is the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. So the chief, think about that. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And the second thought is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God has a passion to be glorified. This is clear and it's perfect because God is the essence of perfection, and there is no aim in this world that is higher than his glory. To have a passion for anything other than his glory would be to seek something less than perfection, which is contradictory to God's nature. God has a rightful passion to be glorified. God's passion and our human delight intersect through the act of worship. And then Piper continues when he says, God's passion to be glorified and our human passion for happiness, they're not at odds because they come to fulfillment in one and the same act, and that is the act of worship. Our hearts, praising God, are not only magnifying his name, it is also bringing our joy in him 
to consummation. And this is, this is beautiful. This is absolutely perfect. It's a glorious truth. Why does God command that we delight in him? Because he's upholding his glory. And he is most glorified when we are delighting in him. For us to follow him in this command, to delight in him, to bring our emotions in line with him, it's not an additional burden of obedience. Rather, this is everything that our entire beings are crying out for. So in his wisdom and his mercy, God says, delight yourself in the Lord. And to that we say, yes, Lord, amen and amen. The Lord, he is drawing us close to him. He gains glory. We gain fulfillment. And we begin to lose our taste for the lesser things. Delight in the Lord is the antidote to our worrying and our fretting. It's the antidote to our anger and our wrath. Delight in the Lord becomes a sin killer. Again, in the home group that Beth and I are part of. A few months back, we were discussing as a group what uh, book study we were going to do next. We had worked through studies on marriage and, and prayer and counseling and gone through books of the Bible. They were all good. But no matter the study, inevitably, it always comes down to the same question every single week at the end of the night. Why are we struggling with prayer or relationships or quiet time or evangelism, etc., etc.? And it's always the same conclusion because we aren't mindful of God. So we can do another study on relationships. We can pick up some helpful tools, but that's not the, what, the, what the problem is. The problem is that we are not consistently mindful of God. We are not consistently delighting in God. When the Lord is our delight, above all delights, sin is repulsive. It's unthinkable. When the Lord is primary in our affections, it is our delight to worship him, to fellowship with him in his word and prayer, to love as he loves, to give as he gives, to put his kingdom above all, and to remain joyful even in suffering as Jesus did, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Delight in the Lord is a sin killer. And we need that because the reality is we struggle with delight in the Lord don't we? I do. As Larry always says, he, uh, Larry Stewart always says, he teaches on the topics that he needs to hear the most about. This is a topic I need to hear greatly on. I struggle with delight in the Lord. When we become discouraged, we will trade delight for duty. We'll trade it for simple service. So I want to look at the, uh, the last book of the Old Testament. I want to look at Malachi for what I think is an example of this. So just for context, um, previously in the story, uh, Israel had been exiled to Babylon as a divine punishment for their idolatry and their refusal to obey God. And then Malachi's ministry takes place approximately 100 years after the Israelites have been brought back to their homeland. So they've already been established for 100 years back in their homeland. The temple has been rebuilt, but things are not going well. The people had high hopes at their return. They were anticipating the promises of God's blessing. Messiah would come. He'd set up a unified kingdom over Israel and the nations. There would be prosperity and expansion and peace. 
But that's not what's happening or, uh, or in the way or the time that they had anticipated. And so this is very similar to our Psalm 37 today. So really important to know is that God's people, they're not lapsing into the gross idolatry that their forefathers had. They had actually learned that lesson and their beliefs are mostly orthodox at this point. But their relationship with the Lord had grown cold. God is still their God, but their relationship had become a shell of outward obedience, of temple sacrifice. They're simply going through the motions at this point. You know, they're discouraged, they're cynical, they are bringing blind and sick animals to the altar. Their passion for the Lord, devoted service to the Lord, has now been replaced by what they feel to be drudgery and duty. And so into this situation, God says to them, and I'm just going to paraphrase a little bit here. God says to Israel, he says, I have loved you. And they respond, I don't think so. Take a look around. You're not holding up to your promises. And the Lord says, you don't honor me and you despise my name. And Israel said, how's that? And the Lord answers, by your half-hearted attempt, at relationship and obedience to me. Try offering that type of service, that type of obedience to your governor. Will he accept it? And of course the answer is no. Now in our own way, aren't we right there with the Israelites in Malachi? We're not sacrificing blind animals, but think about our own lives. In what areas and what callings did we once find ourselves on fire for the Lord? But now we find ourselves just going through the motions. For example, what was once sweet fellowship with the Lord and his word and prayer is now just another item on our checkoff list. Or the spiritual gifting that we received when we were saved, we received it with amazement. And now it's a resented burden. Or the blessing of having a job or raising a family has been reduced to mechanical tasks with no thoughts, further thoughts of expanding God's kingdom. Or the joy of meeting here as a church body or meeting in home groups or sharing the gospel. They're now energy-draining encounters. We're tired. We're tired of sharing ourselves with others. We're tired of encouraging each other. Like the Israelites, we have, may have traded delight for duty. But we ask, this is important, isn't duty to God of some importance, some value? Even when we don't necessarily feel it, isn't the fact that we're pushing through and performing in any way important? And yes, it is, but probably, much, not much as, probably not as much as we would like it to be. When our actions don't match our words, we call that hypocrisy. And even worse, when we perform solely out of duty, we're making an idol out of ourselves. This type of unengaged duty tends to elevate us. We insert ourselves into the story at that point. Lord, look what I'm doing for you. Look what I'm giving up for you. Lord, look how hard this is. If we don't delight in the Lord, we will delight in ourselves and we will make idols of ourselves. And the Lord's response to Israel, to Israel's weak worship, was to say, stop. Just stop. Shut the door of my temple Stop your sacrifices. I have no pleasure in you. And this is sobering. And why would we think that God's reaction to us would be any different? 
In relationship with God, he's commanding all of us. He is Lord of action and affection. And God goes on to say that he is a great king and his name will be honored among the nations. But this disinterested duty is not the way to do that. Another example to look at is in 1 Corinthians 13. And here the Apostle Paul is instructing on the use of spiritual gifts. And he's making it clear here that in using the gifts, we must have proper motivation and love for God and affection for God. God gives the gifts. We are to be obedient in using the gifts. But it isn't simply enough to use them. That misses the point. The entire point is how they are used. And namely, they must be exercised in a way that glorifies God. And what is the way that honors God? And clearly it is the way that is rooted in love and delight for God. And so Paul explains, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. This is absolutely sobering, and the implications are stunning. That without delight in the Lord, and thereby love for others, we could give our entire lives away, and what we believe is service to the Lord, and it would be for nothing. So what do we do? If we're not delighting in the Lord, our disinterested obedience is not good, what do we do? So there's hope here, and I want to walk this thought back just a little bit here to clarify. So this is important. When we don't delight, I'm not saying this relates to our salvation. It does not, and that is the good news. And to quote a Mike Halpin teaching from the summer, he talked about this very subject when he said, our emotions follow belief in God, Emotions are not first, belief is first. Delight in God is not salvation, but rather, delight in God is more life in God, it's better life in God. So, we're not going to doubt our salvation over this, but we do want to use uh, delight as a metric to examine whether God is still our first love or not. So that's important. And second, our obedience to everything that God commands is important, it's required, even if we're ha struggling with having the right motivation. So, for example, we want to consider Jesus' parable in the, of the two sons in Matthew 21. You know this. Uh, a man has two sons. He tells the first one to go and work in the vineyard, and the son says, I will not. Afterward, that son changes his mind, and he does go to the vineyard, and he works. The father says to the second son, go work in the vineyard. The son says, yes, but he doesn't actually go. And so Jesus asks, which of the two did the will of the father? And the answer, of course, was the first son, the one who said no, but then actually went and did that. So our duty, our service, our obedience to the Lord is important. However, Scripture shows repeatedly that we don't stop there. God is calling us to full integrity in action and affection because he's a great king. He's worthy of all honor. So what, again, what do we do? Well, we can't unnaturally try to churn our emotions up. And we can't... Put a guilt trip on, and I hope that's not what we're doing. Put a guilt trip on us. Put a guilt trip, guilt trip on yourself because that's not going to get you there. That's not going to sustain you. The good news is, and this is the grace-filled news, is that ultimately it's not what we do 
Rather, it's what God is going to do in us by his spirit renewing us that will actually move us to delight in him. So this is great. God gives the command, and then he enables us to be obedient to the command. When we bring repentant hearts, hearts that are contrite and broken over living before God in a way that doesn't honor him, he will joyfully receive us. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God will be at work in our obedience. He'll bring us along. He'll show us a better way. And he will bring us to fullness and joy in him. And that is good. Psalm 103 says that as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and thankfully, he remembers that we are dust. The Lord is gentle towards us, even when we haven't heard what he's saying. I think the way that God uh, shows compassion to us here, it's similar to the way my dad showed compassion to me in growing up. And so I want to tell a little story about my dad it still looms very large in my memory, and I will say this is not a perfect analogy, but I think it might be helpful, and maybe you can identify with some of this. My dad was a home builder. He really enjoyed his work. I would definitely say my dad delighted in his work. He was really good at it. And growing up, he's going to teach me how to work, and so that usually would consist of him um, bringing me to the job site, whatever house he was building at the time, and he would hand me a broom, and he would have me sweep the house. And I hated it. I hated sweeping the house. He, he had the hammer, he was doing all the cool stuff, and I was sweeping the house. So eventually, I think when I'm around 12 years old, uh, my dad is headed out back to work after dinner, and he asked me to join him, I say, no, I'm not gonna go. And so he goes on without me. <clears throat> and my mom turns to me and she says, why aren't you going to work? I said, because I don't like to. I don't like to do this work, I don't like to sweep. I'm not doing it. She goes, and she chuckles, <laughs> well, you know, people go to work all the time and don't enjoy their work. And when she says it, it's a reality bomb. <laughs> what? For some reason, in my even 12-year-old adolescent brain, I instinctively knew that my actions should match my inner thoughts. How could I possibly work when inwardly I hated it? Well, anyway, so this is revelation. I'm going to accept it, and I'm resolved in that moment. Okay, I'll go to work. I just won't like it. Dad's going to have my obedience, but he's not going to have my heart. And so this twisted logic makes sense to me somehow. It makes me happy. I'm winning, even though all I'm doing is actually showing up. But that's okay. My dad can work with my obedience. He'll take it from there. He's good with that. And so uh, he taught me everything there was to know about home building, everything I know about that. He, you know, he taught me how to use tools and how to look at material and figure out how to cut it up and how to do trim work and how to do framing, and he taught me how to estimate costs, how to work with banks, how to work with customers, and he, uh, he told me story after story after story of what to do when this happens or what to do when that happens. I mean, just super, super helpful. And he taught me attitude and perspective. And so the, he has phrases and work thoughts that he had that he'd expressed to me, and I, I can still hear these today, to this day, and I still use some of these. He would say things like, don't get too low, don't get too high. He's saying, manage your expectations, manage your emotions here, manage your time. Kind of stay straight down the middle. Let's don't get too wild here. Or he would say, and this is famously, he would say this. He'd say, get comfortable before you work. Now for him, that may be, he's 30 feet in the air. He's hanging upside down from a rafter with one hand and a nail gun in the other. But he's moving around until he's comfortable. Don't start nailing before you're comfortable up there. 
So his, that phrase was scary, get comfortable before you work. <laughs> or he would say to me, uh, take your time, do, do a good job. You know, my dad was very smooth when he worked, he's very fast, he was very talented. And so I'd want to kind of try to keep pace with him, kind of show him I could do, do what I needed to do. And so uh, one time when I'm trimming windows out, I'm, I'm trying to trim as many as I can. I'm just kind of phoning it in, I'm jamming through the work as quick as I can, how many can I get done? And he comes to inspect them. And when he does, the work is, work is bad. I'm proud of the number that I've, uh, I've trimmed out, but the work is bad. And in fact, it's not acceptable. And his response to me, it's soft and it's measured. And he said, hey, don't worry about the speed. Just take your time. I want you to do the best job that you can. He was saying attitude. And I had so many bad attitudes. I had so many bad efforts. But he was patient with me. He extended grace upon grace upon grace in teaching me. And in his kindness, I began to see the work as he did. I began to value it. I appreciated it. I even enjoyed it. One of the, maybe one of the most important things that he taught me was that you have to have a clean workspace to work in. He said, you can't work in chaos. You need to sweep up around here. You can't get comfortable. Sweep up every day. Sweep the house up every day. It shows off the work. It shows off what we're doing here. And this is what he was trying to teach me at first. It was to value the ultimate goal that we were going for, and that was a completed house and a happy customer. So this is the best part. The customer comes to visit the job site. They see the clean house. It demonstrates a, a level of care and trust. They're thrilled with that. They're excited in that, and we were satisfied with that. It was great. My perspective on sweeping had been wrong. I didn't see the value. I didn't see the glory in it. The sweeping, the service to my dad, I had viewed as drudgery and duty, but he trained and he taught me with the, in the proper attitude to accompany my service. So, you know, out of all the things that I ever did as a home builder, many years after working for my dad, my favorite thing to do was to sweep the house up. It brought joy to my customer, it brought joy to me, and I delighted in it. You know, and the compassion that my dad showed to me in that, this is how I recognize the Lord's work in my life today. God's kindness leads me to repentance. And God's kindness leads us to repentance. And so if this is where we are today, if we have traded delight for duty, we can simply pray, Lord, we've blown it. Would you teach us how to delight in you? And God is faithful. And by his spirit, he will enable us to be obedient to him. And this is very, very good news for us. So if this is really God's territory, that he's gonna do this work, what, what is our part? As far as it depends on us, how can we put ourselves in the path of grace of the Lord? What can we do to encourage the heart change, to be more mindful of the Lord? You know, how do we fight for joy? How do we fight for delight in the Lord? So I would love to say there's an easy formula towards this. Here's three easy steps to delight, but I cannot, and that would be very limiting. I will say this, and it obviously starts with meeting with the Lord and knowing the Lord, and that is going to be in his word to us. So we read our Bibles. You know, we delight in God through prayer and through worship, our obedience to him, our service to him. We delight in regular meeting, worship with the church body, through our marriages, through our relationships, 
through evangelism, missions, discipleship, through work and money management, through our witness and suffering. All things that God loves, all things he delights in, and all ways who identify with Christ and his fellowship with the Father, his joy, and his suffering, we can find our delight. But it all starts, it's all informed by God's word to us. We can learn about God, but to delight in him, we have to know God. And so there's numerous uh, disciplines in the study of God's word, of course you know. Um, I don't know which one is the best for everybody, but for me it's always been meditation on God's word. I think meditation is the best. Author uh, Don Whitney says that reading is exposure to scripture, but meditation is the absorption of scripture. If we read without meditating on it, we will likely forget it. And if we can't remember what we read, we won't be changed by what we read. So just in wrapping up here, I just want to talk briefly about this one discipline of meditation, something maybe we can take away today. When we meditate on God's word, we are actively pondering it. We are slowing down. We're spending time here. We're speaking to ourselves about it. We're speaking to God about it. There, you know, there's a sense of muttering to yourself, actually, of murmuring. We're turning the words over and over again out loud. We're memorizing the word. We're hiding it in our hearts. We're praying the word, and then we're exhorting ourselves. We're encouraging ourselves in the word. And meditating on God's word, it's mentioned, of course, numerous times in Scripture, and especially in the Psalms, where we see the psalmist meditating on God's wonderful deeds, his unfailing love, meditating on his decrees, his precepts, meditating on his statutes, his ways, his promises, and we're meditating on what his hands have done. And it's instructive that this is done day and night. And it's instructive in the fruit that it produces. As you know, in Psalm 1, the blessed man doesn't entertain the way of the godly, Rather, he is delighting in the law, the word of the Lord. And on his law, he is meditating day and night. And therefore, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit, and he prospers. He delights in the law. He delights in the Lord because he knows the Lord. He knows the Lord. He sees the beauty of the Lord because the Lord is before him continually, night and day. So we can look uh, to the patterns of our life. We identify the things that we are currently delighting in. And it's likely those things that we give the most time and attention to. So we should take an inventory of our delight. The man that is blessed is giving his attention to the things of the Lord, thoughts and reflections on the Lord. And he has found his delight and fulfillment squarely in the Lord where we want to as well. So practically, if we are not currently meditating, and this is not a normal part of your uh, routine, and if meditating day and night sounds overwhelming, which it probably does, we can start small. If you are, if you are currently reading your Bible for 10 minutes a day, might I suggest that just you read five minutes a day, and then you reflect on what you read for five minutes a day. As my dad would say, just take your time here. Don't worry about speed or volume. It's about the quality and the attitude. And I think you will begin to find that the word of God is like the facets of a diamond. That you look at it and something is revealed and you turn it and something else and you turn it and something else and you turn it again and something else is revealed. The depth and the beauty of the Lord is unending. And you will find that the Lord is more and more filling your thoughts. He's informing your actions and affections. And you will know that the Lord is with you.
This is a way that we can set the Lord continually before us and that we can delight in him. God said, delight yourself in the Lord. Seriously? Yes, yes, and thankfully, yes. It is an act of supreme mercy that God allows us to delight in him. He is our father. He is showing us the path of life. He is directing us to freedom and liberation, all for his glory. We can release the burdens that we're carrying. We give them to God. We remove the idols in our life, all the lesser things that vie for our attention and weigh us down, and instead become singularly focused on the Lord. Let God be the source of all. God commands that he would be uppermost in our affections, that God's glory would be uppermost in our affections because God's glory is uppermost in his affections. He preserves, he displays his glory, his beauty, his perfections, his holiness, his righteousness. These are the elements that are the sources of true delight. This is the delight that God wants us to have. And in his mercy, he is allowing us to share that with him, which is where the second half of the verse comes in. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. When the Lord is our delight, our desire is for more and more of him, and he will surely provide that. Amen. We are known as believers. We are followers of the Lord. Even more so, let us be known as those who delight in the Lord. Now, if you'd please stand with me and the worship team would come. Let's read together the, uh, the first four verses of Psalm 37. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Amen.